Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening. If you would, take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus of Nazareth, the God who forgives sin. Mark, chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All of us, unless we are a sociopath, are confronted with two critical questions that are unavoidable, what we call those ultimate questions of life. These two questions in particular relate to the issue of sin. One being, can I be forgiven of my sins? And secondly, who can forgive my sins? Can I be forgiven of my sins? And who can forgive me of my sins? The reason that we have to face these questions is that, quite simply, sin, without any question, is our great enemy. Uh, It is our greatest problem. It separates us from God. It renders us spiritually dead. Sin not forgiven results in this terrible thing called eternal death in a place called hell. On the human plane in this life, sin shatters relationships, causes us to think foolishly. It leads us to make bad choices and decisions. It will move us to act in evil and destructive ways. So we come back again to the two questions. Question number one, can I be forgiven of my sins? And the Bible has a wonderful answer, yes. Second question, who can forgive my sins? And the answer is God can The God who has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the son of God in chapter one, verse one, the holy one of God in chapter one, verse 24. And now a new title, the son of man in chapter two, verse 10. 
When we teach systematic theology at the seminary, we study the doctrine of salvation. And we point out that the doctrine of salvation must be understood in three tenses. It's past tense, it's present tense, and it's future tense. In terms of the past tense, Jesus Christ has saved us from the penalty of sin. We call this justification. In the present, God is saving us from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. And in the future, God is going to save us from the presence of sin. We call that glorification. So he saved us from its penalty. He is saving us from its power. And ultimately, he will save us even from sin's presence. That is the scope of the incredible and glorious salvation that God makes available to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith. And when we are confronted with such a God who provides such a salvation, what is the appropriate response that you and I should have in light of who he is and in light of what he does? And in this text before us this evening, there are three things that we see that give us an understanding of how we ourselves, who are forgiven sinners by his grace, should respond to this great and wonderful salvation. Number one, in the first five verses, we see that we should bring the hurting to Jesus. Now, very interestingly, chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, is the beginning of five distinct controversies that Jesus will have with the religious leaders up there in the north around the area of Galilee. Later in this same book, Toward the end of his public ministry, he will also record five more controversies with the religious leaders in the south. You find this in chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 37. So whether he's in the north, in Galilee, or whether he's in the south, in Jerusalem, in the area of Judea, he is going to be engaged from the beginning to the end of his ministry with controversies with the religious leaders, the religious elite. Uh, As we're going to see in our study, the the people that, though we tend today to speak of in a negative light, in the first century, they were the admired. They were the greatly respected. The people that he has the controversies with would not have been what we would have anticipated had we been alive in the first century. And so this is going to be the first of five very simple, very concise controversies that Jesus has with the religious leaders there in northern Israel in what we call the area of Galilee. John chapter 1 verse 11 is tragically true. He came to his own and his own did not receive Now, verse 1 begins by telling us he has returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. He is referring here to the preaching and healing ministry that Jesus had conducted back in chapter 1, verse 38, through chapter 1, verse 45. Most likely, he is once more back at home, and back at home in the house of Peter's mother-in-law. You know, as I was thinking about this text, as I was preparing this message, I began to wonder, I just wonder how Peter's mother-in-law felt about all of this. Uh, If you remember, she was sick earlier and Jesus healed her. That was a good thing. But immediately after being healed, she begins to serve them. And then as soon as the Sabbath is over, people just begin to flock to their house. Well, he's back. And, of course, when he comes back, the word gets out and here they come again. But, oh, she has no idea. The degree of disruption that she is about to experience when Jesus returns to her her home. Well, the first thing we understand in terms of bringing the hurting to Jesus is, number one, 
Uh, we all need, they need to hear his teaching. It says there that it was reported that he was back in the house. And verse 2, many of them were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching to them. The Bible basically indicates that the house is filled. Uh, that in fact it is so filled you can't even get into the doorway. It is jammed as well. Now we need to understand that this would not have been all that unusual in the ancient world. Even to this day, uh, Near Eastern hospitality would dictate that you turn no one away. Uh, that you receive anyone who seeks to come into your home and you take care of them when they come into your home. So we're not surprised that the house is jammed and we're not surprised that people are even blocking the doorway. Now again, the homes of the uh, first century Jewish world were not really large. Unless you happen to be extremely wealthy. And though it may be the case that Peter and Andrew and the fishing family that they were part of had some degree of wealth, they certainly were not the aristocracy of the ancient world. And so most people suspect that there's somewhere between 50 and maybe as many as 75 people that have crammed into the house and they're also there in the doorway. Now, why did they come? Why are they there? Well, interestingly, the crowd in Mark is never portrayed, for the most part, in a positive way. And so most likely, Mark is even subtly indicating to us, well, they're back to see another miracle. Uh, they're back to see another show. Uh, they're back to see if Jesus will perform some other spectacular act that they can be uh, uh, amazed by and astonished by. In other words, they want another miracle. Instead, Jesus does what? He gives them teaching. He gives them preaching. Now, again, a question begs to be asked, what was he doing? Well, the text tells us he preached or he spoke the word to them. What word was he speaking to them? Well, I think there's no question that he was preaching to them from their Bible. That would have been the Old Testament as we know it today. I think also he was preaching the same message that it was said he preached back in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He was preaching to them the kingdom of God, calling them to repent and to believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just this afternoon as I was studying for next week's message, I saw that more than 15 times in Mark's gospel, he will summarize the ministry of Jesus by using the phrase, and he was teaching, and he was teaching, and he was teaching, and he was teaching. James Edwards is right on target when he says, quote, More than any other expression in early Christianity, the word defines the essence of Jesus' ministry. He came, as he said in, John, in Mark chapter 1, I came to preach. And so he's traveled throughout Galilee preaching. He's now back in Peter's house. And surprise, no, he's again preaching the word. So first of all, as we bring the hurting to Jesus, we understand they, like we, need to hear his teaching. But secondly, also, they need to experience, as we do, his forgiveness. Verse 3 tells us, and there came bringing to him a paralytic. And they were, indeed, he was carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the man on which the paralytic lay. Uh, four men show up with a man who is paralyzed, a man who, who cannot walk. Obviously, they have come because they believe Jesus can do something for their friend. There is already in their very coming an act of and an evidence of faith. But verse 4 presents for us a very serious problem. Because of the crowd, they could not get in to see Jesus. But they were not deterred. 
Uh, They did not give up. They did not throw in the towel, but rather being very industrious. The text tells us they went outside and they went above and they removed the roof from the home. Now, here's what you have in the ancient world. You have small homes uh, made mostly of clay and mud, and they were almost always made with a flat roof. And what you would also have would be an outside stairway that would allow one to go up on top of the roof. In fact, many times because of the excessive heat, uh, this is where they would sleep at night. They didn't have to have to worry about it raining. And so instead of being inside that very hot, almost like an oven type home, they would go up and they would sleep and they would rest there on the top. So they've taken the outside and they've gone up on the roof. Now, the roof itself would have been made, uh, best I could understand from my study, of, of rather large cross beams. Then they would lay across it sticks and then they would begin to put in with it grass uh, mud and clay. And they even had like a, an ancient roller that would go over the top again and again and again to pack down that mud and pack down that clay. And so mixed together with the grass and the wood and the beams, it would form a very substantive uh, roof that one could walk on, one could lay on. And so there was no problem with one being up there on the top of this mud, clay, grass, wood roof. But because it was made of mud and clay and grass and wood, you could dig a hole in it. And so literally the text tells us, it's very fascinating in the original language, it says they unroofed the roof. In other words, they begin to dig and they begin to tear. And can you imagine what it must have been like down below? And again, I'm wondering of all the people that are there, how is Peter's mother-in-law responding to this? First of all, the house is jammed and she's got to feed them. She's got to entertain them. Uh, the doorway's blocked. And now some lunatic, no, four lunatics are up on her roof and they are digging a hole. And so you can imagine if you're down underneath what's happening. You're getting a shower, but it's not of water. It's grass, and it's mud, and it sticks, and so her house is just being decimated by all these folks who are following Jesus. Well, the issue of the story is not the fact that they tore up her roof. It's never referred to again. I, I will assume that by some means it got fixed later. Maybe Jesus' miracle, I doubt that. I imagine they had to go in there and fix it the old-fashioned way. And so, anyway, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story really reaches its climax there in verse 5. They've let the man down before Jesus in verse 4. And verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, son, literally, little child, your sins are forgiven. Now, a number of questions need to be asked. He saw their faith. Whose faith? Well, certainly he saw at least the faith of the four. I, however, am convinced that he also saw the faith of the paralytic. In other words, do I believe the paralytic had faith in being brought to Jesus? Yes, I do. I think that not only did the four have faith, but I think he had faith as well. Furthermore, there's a, an additional reason why I believe this. Jesus says there in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Another question. Are sins and sickness related? And the answer is, in a general sense, yes. In a specific sense, sometimes. In a general sense, yes. In a specific sense, sometimes. You say, explain that. Generally speaking, people get sick, 
people get ill and people die because of sin, because of the fall, because we live in a sinful, fallen, sin-infested world. People do get sick, people do get ill, and people do die. If there was no sin, there'd be no death, there'd be no sickness, there'd be no illness. When we get to heaven... And sin has been eradicated completely. We will not get sick. We will not get ill. And we will not die. So sin in general is responsible for sickness and illness. Now, second question. Is sin related to a specific illness or sickness? And the answer is sometimes. Sometimes. And in this particular instance, I think the answer is yes. You say, why do you say that? Because it makes no sense. For Jesus to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. If his illness was not in some way connected to his sin. In other words, you never find in the Bible any other time, not once, when a sick person is brought to Jesus, that the first thing Jesus says to them is, your sins are forgiven. So in this particular instance, I don't know what he had done. The text doesn't tell us. But I am convinced that unlike the man born blind in John 9, where the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? Their theology was messed up. Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind, not because he sinned. Uh, This man was born blind, not because his parents sinned. This man was born blind that God might be glorified. But here... Evidently, this man's paralysis, at least in some way, was connected to his sin. Now, of course, Jesus had never met this man before. The only way he could know this is, as we're going to see, because he's God. Because he's God. And God knows when sin and sickness are connected, and God knows when sin and sickness are not connected. Do you and I ever know that? Not very often. Oh, there may be some overt kind of situation. For example, someone that becomes ill with cirrhosis of the liver because of an excessive drinking habit. Well, then, yeah, I can see those two things connected. But if you were to come to me tonight and say, I need you to pray for my my little son or, or my little daughter because they're sick, would I immediately draw the conclusion that either your son or your daughter or you had committed sin? No, I would not draw that conclusion at all. And even if it were true, I wouldn't know that. And so we need to be very careful in making those kind of connections. God can do that because he's God. You and I are not God, so we might want to be a little bit more careful in making such judgmental decisions with respect to a connection between sin and sickness. What we need to understand from this text at this point is this. This man may have needed healing, but even more than that, like all of us, he needed to have his sins Forgiven, And so amazingly and wonderfully, this man got more than he wanted. This man got exactly what he needed. He experienced the forgiveness of his sin. So we should bring the hurting to Jesus. Secondly, we should also see Jesus for who he truly is. We should not be stunned by the reaction of the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. They had come to hear the young teacher teach. They had come perhaps to see another miracle. They had not expected him to commit blasphemy. 
They had not anticipated that this young Galilean rabbi would declare himself to be God and thereby invoke and invite upon himself the death penalty. But that's exactly what they got. Son, verse 5, your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there and they began questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, upon hearing Jesus declare the man to have his sins forgiven, they accused him of blasphemy. By the way, in Mark chapter 14, verse 64 and 65, you will see that's the very charge they used with the high priest to get him crucified. So they didn't forget. And it was a charge that they would keep against him all the way through his ministry. He is blaspheming. You say, what does that mean? It means to dishonor. We, we most often connect the word blasphemy with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But the word itself means to, to speak negatively or to speak uh, dishonoringly or to speak in a disrespectful way. And by the way. Uh, they're right because they go on to make the question and to make the statement, who can forgive sins? But God alone. They're, they're raising the right question. They, they've got that correct. The problem is they don't have the right answer. But they're absolutely correct in their rhetorical question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer is nobody can. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And unless Jesus is God, by the way. According to Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 15 and verse 16, he should be stoned. He should be stoned and put to death, be a capital punishment for blaspheming God. What he has said has dire, serious consequences if he's not God. But then that leads us to the two things that, uh, that Mark wants us to see from this text this evening. Number one, Jesus is God. The scribes were correct. Only God can forgive sins. And that is exactly and precisely what Jesus was claiming. And as we will see in a moment, he'll prove it by healing the man. In fact, he will prove it later for all time by his own resurrection from the dead. Now, here's something that's interesting that I discovered. In all of the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, there were many things that they expected the Messiah to do. They, for example, expected him to come and overcome the demonic. They expected him to come and usher in a perfect government. They expected him to come and judge the rebellious and the idolaters and the godless. They expected him to come and deliver uh, the nation of Israel from, uh, from Gentile oppression. But you never even one time, even in the Bible or outside the Bible, you never even one time see them ascribing to the Messiah the ability to forgive sins. There's a wonderful writing, it's not a biblical writing, called the Psalms of Solomon. It's an extra-biblical writing in the uh, Old Testament era, in the intertestament period. And it says, Messiah will overcome demons, usher in perfect government, judge the godless. But he does not have the power to forgive sins. They had their theology correct on that point. The only one who can forgive sins is God. Pope can't forgive sins. A priest can't forgive sins. A pastor can't forgive sins. Ultimately, all sin is against God, and therefore only God can forgive sin. Well, 
Mark has given us and Jesus has given us an overt declaration of his deity, but there's also a very subtle declaration of his deity as well. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, immediately, Jesus what? Perceiving in his spirit. In other words, he knew their thoughts. Not only is he the God who forgives sins, he's the God who knows the human heart. He here takes advantage briefly and momentarily of his divine attribute of omniscience, knowing what is even going on in the mind and the heart of these who oppose him. And so he understands what's going on. And so he says there in verse 8 and verse 9, he raises a a couple of rhetorical questions. And he says, verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, Jesus knew as, as they did. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to prove it. And I would submit to you that the proof is just around the corner. So by his declaration of the ability to forgive sins, uh, by his omniscience, knowing what is going on in their hearts, Jesus gives evidence that he is God. But secondly, Mark also wants us to understand that he is the son of man. Verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, we need to stop here for a moment and unwrap a very important and often misunderstood phrase in the Bible, that being the phrase, the Son of Man. This is the first time, by the way, the phrase occurs in Mark's Gospel. It will occur a total of 14 times in Mark's Gospel, 81 times in all the Gospels, and only two times outside the Gospels, once on the lips of Stephen when he is being stoned, and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the power on high. And you also find it in Revelation chapter 1, where John has that great vision of the exalted Christ, and he also there describes him as the Son of Man. Now, here's what's interesting about this title. It is clearly the favorite title of Jesus. He uses it of himself over and over and over and over. In fact, you never find anyone calling him the Son of Man. You always call find him calling himself the Son of Man. So it's clearly his favorite title. He uses it far more often than he uses the title Christ, Messiah, far more often than he uses the title Son of God, which he hardly ever uses. Now, the question then is to be raised and answered, well, what did he mean by this title Son of Man. George Eldon Ladd, a wonderful New Testament scholar, as well as several others, have said, well, when you analyze all the sayings, you can basically break them down into three major categories. And you have that there in your notes. Number one, you have the Son of Man who is serving us. That's how it's used here in chapter 2, verse 10, as he forgives sins and raises up the paralytic. Secondly, you have the Son of Man suffering. That is, where the Son of Man goes to the cross and dies and pays the penalty of our sin. And then thirdly, you have the Son of Man in His coming in glory. That is, the Son of Man, when He will come with the clouds as He comes back at His second coming. Now, very interestingly, if you just take Mark's Gospel, the title Son of Man only occurs twice before chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter says, You are the Christ. 
So after you have Peter making that great confession before the more full confession from Matthew's gospel, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, you'll find the phrase Son of Man occurring more and more and more and more and more. So again, I'm back to the question. Why does he use it? Where does it come from? Well, it's easy to answer part of it. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the Old Testament. And the phrase Son of Man is used in two different ways in the Old Testament. It is used, first of all, for example, in Psalm 144, verse 3, as just a general way of talking about humanity. I'm the Son of Man. I'm a human being. It's used in that general uh, kind of a way to denote someone who is human. All right? But it also occurs in a very interesting and strategic place, that being in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14. Don't turn there. I'll read it for you. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And, listen, to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And I love this. This is found in Revelation repeatedly. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus, I believe, uses the phrase Son of Man with both connotations. First of all, I'm a man, and I have come as a man to identify myself with sinful humanity, and I will serve and suffer on your behalf by dying for your sins on the cross. But also, he uses this phrase as an identification of the fact that he is that apocalyptic son of man of Daniel 7 who is going to come again and receive a kingdom that will never, ever pass away. For some reason, and we don't know why, the first century did not seem to make a big deal out of this title. It wasn't really on their radar screen all that much. So Jesus could use this title to begin to help us understand who he is But he could do so without all the political overtones that would come with the title Messiah. And certainly with the way that they would have responded to the title Son of God. And so he can identify himself as the Son of Man. And here's what he does, very interestingly, in this gospel. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I've alluded to it before. I'll allude to it again many times before we get there. You have perhaps the key verse in Mark's gospel. It says this, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What is Jesus doing? He is wedding the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who's going to receive an everlasting kingdom, to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And what he is saying to us is, I am the Messiah who is going to inherit an everlasting kingdom from my Father, but I will inherit my kingdom by suffering service and pouring my life out for many. That's why he uses so often this title, the Son of Man. And interestingly, we move ahead. This is the only time in the Gospels that the title Son of Man is connected also with the concept of the forgiveness of sins. And so Mark wants us to understand that we should bring the hurting to Jesus. He wants us to understand that we should see Jesus for who he truly is. And then number three, he wants us to glorify Jesus for what he does. 
In spite of opposition from the religious aristocracy, the story does have a happy ending. Those who have brought this hurting man to Jesus are not going to be disappointed. William Lane, the wonderful New Testament scholar, says this about the healing of the paralytic. This was more than a display of mercy to a wretched man. The announcement of forgiveness and presentation of radical healing to a man in his, to a man in his entire person was a sign of the kingdom of God drawn near. The paralytic experienced the fulfillment of God's promise that the lame would share in the joy of the coming salvation. And it's in your notes. Isaiah 35 verse 6 says this, when the Messiah comes, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We glorify Jesus for what he does. First of all, what does he do? Once more, he forgives us of our sins. Coming in faith to Jesus, the hurting man receives far more than he expected and exactly what he needed. He receives the full healing by receiving the forgiveness of his sins. His friends, and he thought initially, his real problem was his paralysis. But that's not true. His real problem, your real problem, my real problem is back to my two initial questions. Can your sins be forgiven? And who can forgive your sins? So let me apply it to where all of us are tonight. If the paralytic's real problem was not his paralysis, then I would also say to you this evening that your real problem is not your spouse, your children, or your parents. Your real problem is not your job, your boss, or your co-workers. And even in the midst of the economy in which we find ourselves, your real problem is not a lack of resources, a shortage of time, or insufficient income. No, Jesus sees things far more clearly than we do, and he understands our real problem is we need to have our sins forgiven. So Jesus forgives our sins. But secondly, Jesus also heals our diseases. As proof of his power to forgive sins, something uh, we cannot see, Jesus heals the paralytic, something everyone could see, and it's very simple and very direct. Once more, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, number one, rise. Number two, pick up your bed. And number three, go home. There is the call or the test of faith. And now we see the obedience of faith there in verse 12. And he rose and immediately he picked up his bed. He went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, my goodness, we've never seen anything. We never saw anything like this. Jesus gave the command. The paralytic responded in faith. And the crowd, at least in this instant, gave an appropriate response. It's very interesting, by the way. If you look at the parallel account of this story in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 tells us concerning the scribes, they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. I'm curious. I won't know until I get to heaven. I wonder if some of the naysayers in Peter's house that day 
for some of the same ones there in Jerusalem when those next five controversies take place in chapter 11 and chapter 12. They, they, they keep hearing of his great teaching. They keep hearing of his great miracles. They even saw one with their own eyes. But you know what? He didn't play by the rules. He didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. If you don't do it the right way in the right time, then it doesn't count. And so even though they came from everywhere to see what he could do and they saw what he did do, they still, at the end of the day, would seek to and succeed in nailing him to a Roman cross. So what have we seen in this text? We've seen the forgiveness of sins declared, verse 5. Question, verses 6 through 9. Validated, verse 11. And now recognized in verse 12. I like to say it this way. The that you know of verse 10 has now become now you know that of verse 10. And yes, indeed, it was another remarkable day in the house of Peter's mother-in-law. So, what five questions should we always ask of every text? And what are the answers we will get tonight? I'll move through this quickly. Question number one, what does this text that we've studied tonight teach us about God? Well, at least three things. One, only God can forgive sins. Two, God is compassionate to those wounded by sin. And three, God honors all who come to him in faith. That's what we learn about God. Secondly, what does this text teach me about sinful humanity? First, our greatest need is not physical healing, but spiritual forgiveness. Secondly, those who are the most religious are often the most judgmental. We should stay there and think about that for just a moment. I know I should. After all, I teach in a seminary. I rub shoulders with preachers every day. I, unfortunately, in next week's message, is already cutting me to shreds. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time with lost people. And so those who are the most religious are often the most judgmental. And sometimes physical maladies and personal sin are related. In this case, I think they probably were. Question number three, what does this text teach me about Jesus Christ? Well, four things. He is God who knows our hearts. He is God who forgives our sins. He is God who heals our diseases. He is the Son of Man who fulfills the glorious vision of Daniel 7, 13-14. The bottom line is Mark 2, 1-12 wants you to understand Jesus is God. That's what Mark is wanting us to understand. Question four, what does God want me to know? Well, number one, we need the ministry of the Word. Every time we see Jesus, He's teaching, He's preaching. Secondly, we need to flee to Jesus and Jesus only for the forgiveness of sins. And thirdly, Jesus can forgive sins because He is God. Finally, what does God want me to do? Well, like the four men and the paralytic, He wants us to act on our faith. And secondly, He wants us to glorify God for all that He does for us in Jesus. One of my favorite books is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In that book, C.S. Lewis presents us with his famous trilemma when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, whereby he tells us he is one of three things. He's either the Lord, he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. And that threefold trilemma is very clearly laid out in pages 54 and 55 of that classic work. And I close with these very powerful words from this great Christian apologist. He nails it. It's almost as if he is writing what I'm about to read, having sat there in Peter's house when these events unfolded that day. Quote, Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He says he has always existed, and here we might add, and that he can forgive sins. Now, among pantheists, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew... 
could not mean that kind of God. You see, God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And then he closes. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And by the way, this is what most Americans would say about him, too. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. So, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him your Lord and your God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. No, he is the God who forgives sins. So the question we all should ask ourselves tonight is, number one, is he my God? And number two, has he forgiven my sins? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great story. Uh, every time I look at it, I see something new and startling and amazing and wonderful. But the bottom line is, this text teaches me that my Lord Jesus is God. And therefore, I should worship him. I should love him. I should serve him. I should adore him. Because he has met me at my deepest need. Not any physical malady I might have. But the sickness of my soul that terrible thing called sin. And I'm so thankful that he looked into my life like he looked into the life of the paralytic, looking past the surface need to the real need, the need to be forgiven. And, Lord, we acknowledge tonight that if he uh, is not God, then what he said was blasphemy. But if he is God, then what he said, he had the right to say, the authority to say, and our only right response is to worship him and praise him and love him and adore him for who he is and what he has done. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you are the God who knows our thoughts. And even more, you're the God who forgives our sins. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at 
www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.